0: What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Solve for Why Vlogcast. Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, whatever the hell else gets celebrated this time of year. Here with my man, my new co-host. Apparently, he's here enough. Nick Howard. I, uh, I'm gonna drag you through some small talk. I like
1: what you did with the side of the hat.
0: It just happened, man. It looks better. This is just natural, you know.
1: I don't like small talk, Matt.
0: I know. That's why we're going to get into it. It's the holidays, man. We got to... I promised the people on Twitter that uh, I would get you drunk in order to prove to them you're not, in fact, a robot. Now, I don't have any spiked eggnog, so uh, you're just going to have to be pretty uncomfortable and go go the hard way. I'm actually anxious
1: right now. So, <laughs> Here's some relevant small talk. Um, I was up late last night just working till like 3, and I figured this will be okay because I can sleep until like one and then go over to Berkey's by three and I won't really like be sleep deprived. So I fall asleep around three, five o'clock in the morning, every single smoke alarm in my house just starts going off and I, I, I jump up and I'm, I'm run out of my room and I'm trying to figure out if I smell any smoke, nothing. So I walk into the guest room and that smoke alarm is high up, so I can't reach it. The smoke alarm in my room is a high ceiling, so I can't reach it. Long story short, all smoke alarms in my house were going off for four hours, from five to nine a.m. You're a smart person, Nick. I know. I th- I think I am, and I disabled it to the best that I could. <laughs> but something was wired in, and the batteries, w- the batteries were the issue. But taking the battery out didn't fix it. It to was watch just- friends. Have you? No. You were never a fan of Friends? There was an episode. Too much small talk. God damn it, man. That type of small talk to me is kind of relevant because it's like a thing that happened. But this other type of small talk, I, I realized this happened two nights ago and I thought of you. I was in a car. We met up with some friends for a surprise party and we had dinner at a neighboring casino. So we all had to take a little shuttle in a car together. Yeah. And it was like six of us packed in. And this this hip hop song came on the radio. I think it's called Panini or something. It's like a new sure. it's a new track.
0: Right. <laughs> that
1: and uh, nobody in the car could believe that the song was called Panini. And then
0: oh, it's it's
1: a uh, little Nas. So that's fine. That's all good. I like, do know the song. But then somebody hijacks that thread of the conversation in the car, and they're like, you know, when I was in high school, like the first Panini I ever got was from Nicki. But I realized at that moment, like this is what I hate about it. It just has no trajectory whatsoever. That's okay. And most of the time, when when you're the one that hijacks it, you just l- end up looking so stupid at the end of it. Well, this so this, this is how this conversation like this kid just got shut down yeah, so yeah. hard. <laughs> right, right. But this is very
0: critical, and this is where like I I think we can find a middle ground. Is generally, I agree, small talk is uh, it's it's benign, it's it's worthless, but. Where it becomes great is if it's comedic or a good story, and the reason why people who hijack threads, if you want to call it that, in a live setting, basically people who take, o- who take over uh, a con- uh, uh, a conversation with something that is inside or not important. The reason why they suck is because they're rotten storytellers, right? Like they don't tell you like this this tall tale that lands at some sort of endpoint where you're just like, oh my God, that was a fantastic story. There are plenty of inside jokes that I have that I've lived in my life that I can tell to a group and make it general enough where like it's still funny to anybody listening. Yeah,
1: I think you're totally right. And the worst part about a bad storyteller is the, the bad storyteller who can't accept that they just need to basically fold. Yeah, yeah. And, and then they just double down and act like they have a place that they're going with it.
0: I have I have one of my best friends in the world uh growing up through high school he's just been notorious for this he's a rotten storyteller and not because he doesn't know what a good story is or how to frame it he just can never end it right so he just never has a punchline.
1: and then before you know it you're
0: it's it's honestly it's the most adorable thing on earth he actually the last time i was home he told this story about his two kids and how they were just like terrorizing him one day like it was just this chain of unfortunate events where, like, he was watching the two kids, which is already a problem in and of itself, and then they had to go to Walmart, and it started to rain, and they got caught in the rain, and then he had to take them to a recital, and they're soaking wet like cats and dogs, and they're screaming and, like, pissing and shitting all over themselves and everything else, and he finally wraps the story in a way where, like, I'm on the ground in tears, and I just got up with a slow clap. I'm like... John, I've known you for thirty-seven years, and that's the best story I've ever heard you tell, start to finish. And the only thing I can figure out is that it was real.
1: There was for a once lot, there, you
0: weren't making anything
1: up. And maybe there was a lot of actually funny points to it. The problem is when it's not funny along the way, and it still doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, that's when I take issue. But okay, let's let's move on. I got my jitters out. So like that, that's what it is good for. It's like good for getting early conversational jitters out
0: yeah it's also good for building things like so no, the, it's not it is it's a distraction to building things. it's not because it, it it's it's a lubricant in some some facet you, you know? don't it's, like lube it's the ky that you're looking <laughs> for in this conversation uh <laughs> like what do you do on dates i'm going way off script now I, I wanted to ask you what your best gift was that you've ever received
1: or given and here mm-hmm. we are talking about first date interviews now this is like Hunt and Chin all over again. Is it? <laughs> they did some date stuff. I think um, Hunt just told Chin he was a bad communicator, and Chin was like, "Yo,
0: you gotta be a dating savant, man."
1: Chin looks good he does. in in the face. Yeah, like super that's skinny. that's what his face should look like. I think. Yeah. A yeah, handsome man. Um, I'm. I don't know what I'm like on a date. I just know that I'm not. Uh, I make a. I make an effort not to force things. Later in my life, I started to, I think, realize that I was just flamboyantly compensating throughout most of my 20s. And I just realized that I think I hard corrected a little bit to the other direction. And now I'm more like uh, overly managed. Like, that's why I think people think I'm like stoic is because I'm like very aware that the other side of it is just looks really stupid and feels really inauthentic. And I was trapped in that for a while. Where you're just like I get that overly compensating with small talk and people pleasing and all that shit, yeah. and now I just sort of like sit back and I like to be in a more responsive place. And if somebody wants to be the one who wants to overreact, that's fine. But um, is there
0: any laughter in Whoville? When <laughs> when you're
1: I laugh. See, that's the thing is I'm I'm a, I'm very amused about different stuff. Um, so while I think most people get amused by small talk. What I'm amused by underneath is seeing the subtle strategies that are being used to to gain validation, and uh, that's the under under the sea stuff that I'm more focused on. Um, and that I have to
0: be—that is some crazy god
1: complex stuff. Man. It's it's weird because I can't. I, I heard uh, Seth Rogan say something that I really related with. He was doing some sort of new show with food. He was the guest, and he was telling people how. He's telling the host how he smokes a ton of weed, but he's found a way to basically weave self uh, gratification, smoking weed into a healthy lifestyle for him. Yeah. So he says, Um, but his his reason for it was that weed really just like is his lubricant for uh, for being able to go out and contextualize his environment in a way that translates into his skill, which is writing scripts. Sure. So. When I heard that, I was like, "Yeah, you know, like this, I can't help this thing that my mind does." But my mind is much more focused on the the meta, like the undertone of every conversation, as opposed to the actual surface content. Uh, Unless I'm doing something like teaching or trying to, you know. I mean,
0: that's tough though if you try to psychoanalyze literally everybody who speaks.
1: It's a complex for sure, and it's also something that my mind isn't is naturally interested in. Yeah. Uh, So what I've tried to do is. I told my my brother for 2020 my my New Year's resolution is that I'm not going to like arbitrarily psychoanalyze anymore. Sure, like unless somebody's requesting. Number one on most New Year resolution lists. <laughs> but you get what I mean. It's like there's a time and a place, and if someone's requesting to be exposed in a certain way, then then that conversation happens. But um, even though I think there's value in pointing things out. Uh, I noticed that my mind, when it's imbalanced in that direction, tends to use it as a way to gain control. Yeah. in, yeah. Some, in some strategic way. So then do you, I'm. Do you like comedy at all? Yeah, I I have a sense of humor. No, man.
0: I I know. Sorry, I, that Jesus. Was, that was un- talking me like I'm fucking autistic. Well, that, <laughs> you might be on the spectrum. Maybe. That was an unfortunate uh, piling on. But the reason why I ask is because I obviously I, I share a lot of these similarities. Like I'm very well-equipped to psychoanalyze people, I feel. Like, I think it's one of my best skills that I bring to live poker is that I'm really good at dissecting environments. I'm good at dissecting archetypes and, you know, figuring out, at least on broad strokes, like, what makes people tick. Um, But the reason why I ask if you like comedy is because I feel like if you're stuck in that gear, in that high gear where it's like you're always stripping somebody down to their core Mm. and trying to figure out, like, who they are, what makes them tick and everything, the world becomes a very dark, nihilistic Mm. place. Can Right. But like, you know, if you have this comedic side to you where like uh you understand that like we're all kind of meant to enjoy one another and enjoy our environments and, and things like this, even if it's some sort of dark humor, that that kind of like peels
1: the layer back and checks you back into reality. Self-deprecating humor, I think, is the best personality to, to cultivate. Mm-hmm. Um but one thing that I think I think people who are outside of the industry don't consider this is like I told this to Hunt at one point. I said, most people don't understand what it's like to have to defend blinds for a living. Yeah, It gives you a very, if, if you do that for 15 years straight, if you are of a personality type that uh, is competitive and over analytical, it tends to result in uh, a very overly competitive I don't want to say the word paradigm because I said I wasn't going to do that anymore, but, uh, uh, you know, people make drinking games about this podcast. There are, there are six Australians <laughs> right now
0: playing a home game that take a shot. Every time chin says, as it pertains to, I told you what
1: I wanted to do and, and do it every time a I paradigm said, a, a four syllable word would have to be a shot. Um, but don't hijack me here. I was Sorry, making, my, I was my making apologies. a point. Yeah, my bad. Um, if you are trained to basically defend or compete for a living, I think it primes you to potentially approach small talk in a way that uh, is more analytical or even critical. Yeah. There's definitely an imbalance to this type of complex. It serves me in certain ways. Cause yeah, I can like go do mindset content and shit for hours and, sure. and, and not even realize that time's going by. Um, but it, it makes it difficult to uh, to stay amused on, on the surface with certain stuff because I'm just seeing I'm seeing more the strategy that's driving the small talk mm-hmm. as opposed to being able to mingle on the surface of the small talk. Yeah, and a lot of time I just think it's more. Uh, I think I, I'm more amused conversations where somebody actually wants to go to the root of why they're communicating from a certain strategy. Sure. Than then the surface, but that is grinchy to a lot of people. I mean, I get it.
0: All right. You're deep. We, we can, we can qualify that. I think that that's fair. Um, and you know, I, I understand the value behind that, but I, I guess like from a more simplistic standpoint, are there, are there like shallow things that maybe not even shallow, that's a bad way of, of putting it. Are there simple things to life? that you derive pleasure from so yeah like, for sure like as far as like gifts go giving or receiving do either of those like send joy to your heart
1: you, um, you really want that question answered about the best gift don't you
0: it's a segue question man i gotta you know i gotta keep this i've given some really bad
1: around. gifts oh uh,
0: let's hear that <laughs>
1: uh so i don't want to bring this up but been well, down. No, but it's funny cuz we always talk about how stupid the love language book is.
0: Kind of, yeah. It it it's it's silly, but uh I very much think that like it it's applicable. So like I 100% am a touch person. Physical touch? Yeah. And it, it makes sense because it's the thing that you're most deprived of as a child. Like I wasn't hugged enough. I didn't have a closeness with my parents at all. So like physical touch is my affirmation. And then the way I speak is uh, I like to uh, provide. Like I like to be Mm. the one
1: giving. So mine's gifts, uh, I think. The way that I uh, associate love is through gifts. And Christmas was actually my favorite day like ever for this reason. I would just like fly down the stairs uh, pretty much in heaven that I was going to get an abundance of gifts that day that I, that I didn't know what they were. Mm. So all of my bad gifts were me projecting what I thought I would like onto the other person. So I remember like one time my sister was like 12 years old and I got her like a Burberry watch thinking it was like the coolest thing ever. Yeah. And my mom was just like, it's just gifts that totally miss because you're not reading into what the other person actually likes. You're just like projecting your own gift preference onto them. Um. So yeah, most of my gifts were really bad. Uh, I I'll probably be able to think of one. Oh, I, I had a really give good gift one time for a girl. Um. And it took me a long time to make. Okay. I think that's like this one is of the, this
0: is the area that I'm interested in.
1: Like one a proxy for a good gift is like if it takes you a long time to to coordinate it or to put it together, and then sometimes how you drop it too, mm-hmm. how you like present it if it's a surprise presentation or whatever. This girl really liked this book. Um, I forget what book it was, but it was the type of book where after you read it, you're like, I wish we could have like a, I wish I could have a bullet point list of all the cool points of that book. Yeah. So I bought like this cool journal and I did like a handwritten cliff note journal of all the cool stuff that I thought was in that book for her. Yeah. Her favorite book, whatever. Um, and then gave it to her in like a, a super cheesy surprise way, and for some reason. Girls love that shit. I don't, I don't give a
0: fuck. Oh, that. no, I totally relate. That is, to me, like, that's super thoughtful. Like, uh, as far as, like, some of the best gifts I've received, um, I, you know, every year I exchange gifts with Danielle because we're best friends or whatever. And she's always, like, very much on the sentiment side of things. So, like, this is a silly gift, but, like, a couple years ago, she got me a book called The Yinzer Bible, which is just, you know, basically slang words from Pittsburgh. And she went through and, like, highlighted and and changed some of the definitions of everything. Like, to me, like, that's super super thoughtful and like I think like some of the best gifts I gave when I was 18, I made a scrapbook for my grandparents that like went through the generations. So like they had like thousands of photos just laying around the house. And like a couple weeks out I just decided, you know, my granddad's sick. I don't know if this is his last Christmas or whatever. I'm just gonna do this. And I ended up scrapbooking for like three weeks and ended up with this like book that was like the size of an encyclopedia. And it started with like their coming together as teenagers all the way through having my uncle and my mom, all the way to like the five grandkids and the two great 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 grandkids or whatever. And like it all came up uh you know, it came off pretty well. The irony was, uh, like four or five months later my granddad passed and my grandma was in such hysterias that she just took that scrapbook and just basically started pulling pages out of it <laughs> to use as as pictures for the slideshow at the funeral. <laughs> um yeah so transitioning uh best gift that i'm giving now is free month to the software y member or software y tv uh that was the lead that was the lead man look i'm I'm just here trying to pay the bills you know chin's getting pissed i keep giving shit away for free it's Uh, the holidays i'm just trying to give all the listeners something to take home waste their time with whenever they're stuck with their family on a on a long christmas day um last opportunity by the time this comes out uh, you guys will have one week left to sign up so use s for y gift my course drops on christmas day exploitative matrix i actually really want you to check it out um we just I didn't watched. know that
1: you went through with that you sent me the yeah.
0: blueprint for it yeah i think i sent you the first episode because it, it it was relative to the argument that we were having um, in Big Bear. Yeah, in Big Bear. Yeah. But it ended up being seven episodes. Uh, I go through a couple hands. One was a uh, hand I played against Chewy on Poker Out Loud where mm, queen jack He had queen jack, yeah, yeah. and I had king nine. Uh kind of butchered from my side, but I think that there's, you know, some relative justifications for like when it becomes okay, like what parameters are necessary
1: to check raise your hand?
0: Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um well, sort of uh basically what i arrived at is that you can check raise that hand and make a lot of money on the flop but then you are losing on every street thereafter when he continues so basically we both reach a point of imbalance that's so bad that um though i'll be printing through the actual check raise itself on turns and rivers i'm just up against such an equity dense range like those weak hands that i choose to bluff with are just dead
1: that's fine though if it's printing on the flop
0: yeah um Yeah, there's 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 so much to discuss. Uh so yeah, that's gonna launch on Christmas Day. Check it out. Would love to hear some feedback. Drop some lines in the comments below or uh head over to our Slack channel. Um also we have a new site about to launch. It's gonna be in beta. So for all of you who have taken advantage of the uh the free TV site, I know it's been a little wonky. Our user interface is uh it's a little buggy to say the least. So we're just yeah, you know, we built a whole new site, basically. It's going to be streamlined. Uh, you can find that at Um It may not be out by the time this podcast drops, but either way, you'll be able to see uh, what we've been working on thus far. Um, last thing, are you familiar with uh, what Dan Smith does every Christmas? Mm-mm. So every December, he does this double up for charity drive where uh i'm not sure where he outsources them or like what other sources uh are investing but basically it's um it's uh, a charity drive for effective giving so similar to like what reg does where they choose like the most efficient uh charities that they can possibly Mm -hmm. send the money to and i think don't quote me on this but i think they did like i think they doubled up 1.2 million last year it might even have been more um and this is the third year running for it they crush it every year so i just wanted to give him like a little shout out opportunity if you guys want to uh donate to dan's double up drive uh we'll have the link posted below feel free to follow through that help some people out in the holiday season go dan (laughs) go dan indeed um all right so uh a little bit of tying things together i guess the the debate that we were having both on the podcast last and in Big Bear. Uh, I thought about it a lot more and I don't wanna get too deeply into this again, but Mm -hmm. I think it it parallels with some of the other discussions we wanna have. Ultimately what I arrived at as to why we have such a big disagreement as to where uh, the imbalances take place between online and live. And I can't believe that this was ever overlooked, but I think largely speaking, it's strictly due to uh, bankroll responsibility. So in the online realm, Due to the nature of how competitive the stakes are and how many uh, variety of stakes you have available to you to get volume in, people are very rarely playing way over their head that are reasonable. Now, fish maybe, but the general sentiment is that, like, you know, fish probably have money, right? It's rare that you're going to have a broke fish. Um, maybe,
1: maybe shot taking or whatever, but they're not going to make a big chunk of your fish data, right? It's rare that you're ever going to have a. A conservative fish or like one that cares about money i would say okay that's fair yeah. e- either way i think that that still falls into the
0: same bucket sure. where uh whether they're rolled or not they're playing like they are okay um in the live realm it's quite the opposite almost nobody in any environment is rolled properly and that's why you know we kind of broke the argument down to the fact of like well at 50 cent a dollar do you see much for go on you're like some and it's usually like good hands and then you know maybe the occasional bluff and i said like well one two like you just don't see four bets that aren't aces and i think that carries through to every single stake because people are forced to take such aggressive bankroll strategies in order to escape the rake trap of like one three and two five and get themselves into a position where they can make an hourly that they can actually live off of because there is no methodology to volume right or there's no method to uh, attaining volume you can only one table you can only put in maybe 2,000 hours a year, whatever the case may be. So people have to be hyper-aggressive. And that looms on most people because, you know, as we agree, most people, are, most people in, in both environments tend to trend um, risk-averse, right? So when you're under-rolled and risk-averse, it just stands to reason that most of the, the uh, big decisions are going to happen before stacks are actually threatened,
1: why do you think that live players are more underrolled? Like I because they disagree don't disagree with that, but well, because they don't have the opportunity
0: to uh, put in a volume great enough at small stakes to be rolled. So essentially, like um, if say it takes ten thousand dollars to play one two with a, a low risk of ruin, which is probably greater than that, but let's for argument's sake say it's ten thousand. Now, uh, the person who's sitting at one two with a ten thousand dollar roll if they're the best in the game, might be making something in the neighborhood of like $25 an hour, right? That's not going to be enough to actually build a bankroll over 2000, over the course of a year, right? So say they even put in the 2000 hours and they make 50K. That's great. It's going to get them to two five, but then the uh, the, the diminishing returns are going to be really massive. So when they move up now to two five and say they have like after living expenses, let's say it costs them 35,000 to live, now they have 25K to play 2.5. Well, the risk of ruin is gonna be slightly higher. The rake will be a little bit less uh, impactful, so their hourly might go up uh, some accordingly. So let's say now they start making like $60 an hour. Now they have to put in, again, 2,000 hours, which for what it's worth, I think it's a broad statement to say, just go put in 2,000 hours. I think very few are actually capable of doing that. Um, So let's say maybe more like 1,500. Now you're looking at them making like 80K a year. And I think that's like what the best winners in 2.5 are possibly making. So the plateau is so, so quick to be reached that you have to be aggressive each step along the way, forcing you into environments where like you're very often underrolled or you're just
1: complacent. And you think that that results in more risk aversion? In I, yeah,
0: I, I think it compounds
1: the risk aversion like tremendously. I mean, I, there's nothing I could say to refute that, but I do have to point out that that is just a theory until it would be able to be proven statistically. Sure. This is is the thing that just, it keeps coming back around to you have certain theories about the way that a pool operates that you can't prove and that's fine and the only thing that we're ever going to agree on is that the live players who come to the best subjective conclusions are the ones that are going to survive because you're all just guessing. Right. Like, you think you have a more intelligent guess, and in some domains, you, you for sure do. And in some domains, you're probably off, and you just don't know that you are. Yeah. And that's why I said, I'm only really interested in speculating on live in zones that I think are imbalanced enough where the human intuition becomes reliable.
0: That, that's uh, fair. I, I guess, like...
1: But what, you have to speculate in every zone if you're a live player. Right. So, like,
0: But what I'm saying is I think that, like... Uh, maybe there's there's probably ways to hone in on your speculation as far as like how rolled somebody in your environment is.
1: So I think what you're doing is, is cool because if you could come up with some sort of like very all-encompassing heuristic like that, that says, okay, this is the environmental difference that causes this risk-averse tendency mm-hmm. and that filters through a lot of the game tree that mm-hmm. shows up in a lot of the game tree and it's what results in rivers not being buffed as much in live etc that's cool because that's actually something that is not nuanced that's right. something that's like you uni- almost universally applicable for a live player to know about how his environment's operating yeah and i think you can make a lot of better decisions if you could prove that heuristic was true right um so that's really what the one thing i would have added to our conversation last time i think is that Whether or not the live player has the data to be able to identify the pool and balance doesn't change the fact that both of the live and the online player are still going through the same process Mm -hmm. to try to arrive at the proper exploit. Right. It's just yours is intuitive and mine is statistical. Exactly. Like we're doing the same thing. We're trying to figure out if someone's bluffing too much or folding too much. Right. On the aggressive end of the tree, we want to know if they fold too much. On the defensive end of the tree, we want to know if the guy's bluffing too much. Um, And I
0: think it really alters the way that you utilize tools available to you such as like uh, most specifically solvers Um, in the sense that like online, because you do have that data available to you, you can kind of uh, well, first, your assumptions are going to be a little bit more clean because you're actually going to be able to rely on some some mass data to to kind of find an aggregate of sorts and test those. But then you're also going to have very specific spots that you want to test in a live setting. It becomes a lot more about uh, kind of fundamentally understanding what it should look like and then recognizing patterns that deviate off of that.
1: Yeah, this is something I thought about after, too. It was funny. After we had that conversation, I I came over to your house for Thanksgiving. And I was like, that pod's going to bomb. Like, There's so many things that we should have talked about that we didn't and so many tangents that we went on that we shouldn't have. Um, Everyone thought you were great. It was funny, I thought I was going to get torn apart and then I was reading the comments, people were yeah. like, Nick's running Berkey in circles over yeah. here. I was like, this is just ridiculous. <laughs> I thought like, I did a pretty good job defending my side, but I guess not. Um, but yeah, the the one thing that I would have simplified it with would be to say that I think what's going on in general, which is the mistake that I see of, of how the industry operates strategically, is people start from the assumption that we should be moving from a GTO position outward exploitatively Mm -hmm. where if you're following incentives, you recognize the market is imbalanced. So we should be starting exploitatively and moving towards complexity as it becomes relevant. Those are two different things. I just
0: think both of them are very true. And uh, here's the framework through which I I would operate. Essentially, like our only real depiction of what game theory optimal even looks like is running two iterative machines against
1: one another don't do that though because that's an overcomplication in itself we can prove what the proper exploit is if we start from a general solver equilibrium
0: right but this is what i'm trying to say right so like as far as the general solver equilibrium goes uh what we have to understand is how that came to be right it's not neither one of these machines or i guess the the solo machine running it against itself or whatever sure it doesn't care about equilibrium itself all it cares is being able to make the next exploit right over and over and over again until it exploits itself down to something we loosely consider to be in equilibrium right where there, there's an essential grudge match um being reached and I think that that's lost on a lot of people. I think people think that this is a sheer calculation of equilibrium that is derived from having some sort of knowledge as to what that equilibrium should be, right? Like having an estimate to begin with and then plugging in
1: parameters and saying like, okay, here's what you have to start with. I'm cool with that. I agree with that. I just don't like, I don't want to entertain an argument that says that PO solvers outputs are nowhere close to GTA.
0: No, no, that's not what I'm saying. What, I, what I'm trying to say is that um, GTO in and of itself is nowhere close to a real environment.
1: I think if we get too anal about the term GTO, mm-hmm. then it's very hard to have a, a consistent argument about whether or not PO is close to it. But like, let's just say, for for simplification's sake, well balanced strategies are able to be achieved by PO solver. Yes, yes. Okay. And from that point, you have the opportunity using tools like NodeLocker to be able to map against a pool, imbalanced, a pool imbalance. If you were to lock a specific pool imbalance, it would show you, do this. And if you did that on the river, it would tell you, do this in a very hard exploit type right. of way. If you did a pre-river, it would give you more of a minimum exploit output because it has to protect against uh, the opponent being able to counter on future streets. That's the aspect of it. But I guess the point that I think falls on deaf ears most of the time is that Most people are starting from the solver equilibrium and then using that as a baseline and finding exploits where they think it's fit. Mm -hmm. A more efficient methodology for making money as fast as possible and moving up in stakes as fast as possible is to start from an exploitative blueprint, which is already simplified because there's way less mixed strategies, and then to introduce solver equilibrium complexities as the environment demands that you become more resilient. Right.
0: I, I'm agreeing with you. I, that's how I learned. Obviously,
1: I didn't. But I, I know. I know you're exploitative at nature. Right.
0: Right. So obviously, I I did learn through that backtracking methodology. W- what I'm trying to basically do is put a uh, a face to all of this. Um, for a lot of people watching, I think like whenever you corner them one way or the other, where it's like you should either pursue GTO and then expand out, or you should pursue exploits and then expand in. I think it becomes very problematic because now they just fall into whatever their uh, archetype is. Right. If you want to be exploitative, you just say like, I'm just going to hone this craft. And then eventually I'll get to the point of like trying to understand what baselines look like and quite the opposite. People who've been down the PO path their entire career, they're just like, no, this is law. Like we have to be rigid here. And then if exploits are available, of course I'm going to like, I was reading some comments, um, I don't. I don't want to get into it, but basically, like, I was reading comments saying that, like, you know, some some uh, low level GTO coaches who put themselves out there as as being like super proficient, um, were were throwing shots at exploitative play, and or exploitative players, I should say, and a lot of the comments who were backing the coach were basically saying, like, I mean, none of his material doesn't say not to exploit. It's like, yeah, but there's. It doesn't tell you how to. Mm. It doesn't. It doesn't give you any sort of path. So what I'm trying to do is like I'm thinking of this sort of like Rock'em Sock'em Robots. You ever play that game as One of my favorite Christmas gifts. If we have to get back. Is on that, that the
1: time. one where they're like, you're hitting the pump yeah. and they're beating the shit out of each other? Bro, they have they have a
0: life size one at Dave and Buster's. It's incredible.
1: I can be any kid on the block. Oh yeah, yeah. They're slugging it out. A left to the jaw and. Oh my block is knocked off. But you can press it right back on. It's Rock'em Sockam Robots. Press this lever. He throws a right. The other a left. Knock his block off. You're the winner.
0: Well, next time. So I'm thinking of it in that sense. Because these are two very... In, in this particular starting point, they're very two equal foes, right? They're the exact same. The strategies are the exact same. Punch the buttons. And it's just now randomization as to who gets the most blows in, right? So to me, that is, uh, you know... PO solve running against itself, right? That's AI, right? We also recognize that no human being is going to get inserted to that. No human being is going to be able to think or mimic or do anything that PO is able to do. So we have to extrapolate out on that, right? So now let's take like the two best players in the world, whoever they may be, Uh, for argument's sake. Like, let's say it's like Ike and Linus or Jungle and uh, whoever, like whatever, right? Somebody that the community-wide believes to be the solve, Okay. Right. The bot, and we put them against each other. Well, they're not going to be equal. They're not going to have mirroring strategies. They're going to have a lot of similarities, but there are going to be some very uh, tangible differences in how they apply, how they think, how they operate, et cetera, et cetera. And now they're going to be exploiting each other back and forth constantly, right? And they'll never play enough iterations to the point where they reach an equilibrium. So they're just going to constantly be in a battle of exploitation back and forth, but it will never get noticed because variance will be greater than the exploits, right? So variance will ultimately probably be the biggest dictation, or, or sorry, the biggest uh, indication as to who who wins or prevails, assuming they're of relatively equal skill sets. Now let's replace one of the best there with like an average player. Again, they're just going to be exploiting each other back and forth. The difference is is that the baseline strategy of the best in the world is just going to naturally be taking advantage of a lot of the weaknesses of the marginal player. And what he does well to exploit other players on his level playing field are unlikely to work against a more balanced opponent, right? And this just continually flowers out until you get to the far extremes where you just have somebody who doesn't know anything about the game and somebody who doesn't know anything in a different way about the game. And I got to just... back up here, though,
1: because... Okay. I need you to clarify something. Yeah. The two best players in the world are playing dynamic exploits against each other for 20,000 hands, however however many hands you want to put for their match. That is naturally going to arrive closer and closer to equilibrium play. Right. The longer that they play.
0: Right. It will. But what I'm trying to say is that they're so far away still. There's such a big removal. Okay. so, So
1: now the reason that I want that clarification is that if they're still so far away, then when that when one of those players now plays the recreational player, is he playing a baseline balance strategy or is he looking to exploit this weaker this is, this is player a great, in every moment? This is
0: a great clarification because I think that what should happen is he should just be looking to max exploit. The and recreation. there
1: should be more exploits available 100%. versus the rack.
0: Right. They, they're, they're now obvious exploits. The reason why two good players pitted against each other that could play against each other for eternity would eventually get closer and closer to equilibrium is because the exploits would never be conscious to them. Right. They would just subconsciously maybe pick up on a thing here or there
1: that seems to work. And their strategies would continually refine. And they would more or less be gravitating towards more balanced play. Right, they would have no iteration. choice because right. they have
0: respect for the other one, whatever the case may be. Okay, okay. When someone has a significant skill edge over the other, the exploit should be obvious. Or at least your your whole goal should be to seek out those exploits.
1: They should be more obvious and more sustainable over time. Right,
0: right. So you should be only fundamentally building a strategy that takes maximum advantage uh, of your opponent without actually teaching them that they're making errors. So, so
1: we're saying the same thing. Right? Yes, for sure. For and sure. and the, the thing that I think is uh, in need of being driven home to the industry is that the correct order is a hard, exploitative play first, gravitating towards more balanced, resilient play later. Yeah. the The, the issue is that when you have a lot of new players or aspiring players looking for the best strategy they're looking to the best in the world to dictate what that is. Mm -hmm. But the best in the world is playing a strategy that is not relevant for the small stakes player. Right. So, and, and also way too complex for him to even be able to implement. So you're dealing with someone who's asking, and this is not the fault of anybody really, if anything, it's, it's just the ignorance of the learner, not understanding that there are strategies outside of his context. You're dealing with a small stakes guy who's looking for the best strategy unaware of the fact that the nosebleed strategy isn't incentivized at his stage nor in his environment Mm -hmm. and then that guy says i can't do anything except what the nosebleed guy is doing otherwise i'll never get to nosebleeds
0: yeah I, i think i want to add a little bit of context to this conversation though because there is a hard divide again i think between online and live because it's not linear live nosebleeds doesn't mean tougher necessarily right in a lot of instances good point uh nosebleeds in a live venue uh, will be a more simple strategy than maybe what you would play at like a five ten on cash.
1: Even game. more of a reason f- to go exploitative the whole way.
0: Yes, and that's why that's why online players hate live players so much, and it's why live players push back so hard against live or, or online players is because they're learning through two totally different lenses. The live guy is honing his exploitative skills, and he's not worried about protecting himself against the field. The online guy is never worried about the people who are beneath them. He just assumes he's going to beat them. Uh, Over the long run, he's only concerned about protecting himself against the player who's above him and learning through that path. And I think both have a tremendous merit and both have massive problems. The live guy who strictly goes down the exploitative path isn't open to the idea that there is a broader game tree to examine. And there's a lot he doesn't understand. And more importantly, they lose a lot of the fundamentals. Like, I can't tell you how many good players, Mm -hmm. people I have respect for, that don't fundamentally understand simple pot odds. And I don't mean it in the sense of like, I have a flush draw, I'm getting laid 2-1, to this is a must call kind of thing. I mean it more so in the sense of like making proper investment decisions based on math. They're still sitting there saying to themselves like, I just know, man, when he bets here, I I just, top pair is no good. I Mm -hmm. can't call. And to me, like that's just like, you're imparting too much control, right? Like you're just trying to take control in a situation where it's like, well, you're getting laid 6-1 to and you have top pair, top kicker probably fine to call there and lose Mm -hmm. you know it's it's too much investment into the result as opposed to the actual fundamentals that drive the process and then conversely online i think that it's far too much of constantly comparing yourself against the answer in the back of the book and basically saying like oh man i got to go home and study these micro spots and i need to know exactly what i'm doing with 37 big blinds small blind versus big against this uh portion of the the tournament and my portion of the range.
1: And I've always been fascinated by what again like going back to the beginning where uh we were talking about what's driving these thought processes. When it's I, risk for both, I think. But when you really reverse engineer why the online guy feels like he has to be perfect from the jump, like yep. he's just I think the online player is more self-critical of his ability to arrive at a quasi balanced strategy, GTO-ish strategy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. From all the players I've talked to, that seems to stem most from an idea that they want to get to the top, and this is the type of strategy they would have to play at the top. So it's what they need to hold themselves accountable to right now. If you if you dig that a little bit deeper though, don't you think that some of it's control? It's all it's all control based distortion, I would say.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think that what they're really saying Underlying that is, I want to get to the top without going broke. I want to get to the top without ever putting my neck on the line and taking some big risks that may potentially crumble. Because what's
1: the risk though? Playing more explo?
0: Yeah, because once you start playing more explo, you're conscious that you're exploitable.
1: Yeah, but you're also you don't have. You're to also sporting me. a way higher win rate, so it's right. just like immediately that argument falls apart. In it my it eyes. falls
0: apart from a a bottom line standpoint but it doesn't fall apart from uh, a risk of ruin standpoint and most people just aren't mentally prepared to go broke
1: hold on though this is so important because this is the main objection to like my whole company when a new person peeps into the poker detox window mm-hmm. and sees any portion of our uh, of our content the number one objection at this stage is this will never work at high stakes
0: sure but, so but that's uh To me, that's trying to cut your legs out.
1: No, I mean, they really believe that there is no version of this strategy that could adapt. Mm -hmm. Like, don't get me wrong. We definitely change the strategy from small stakes to high stakes. We make it more resilient, more disguised, Mm -hmm. more balanced. But it's the same progression the whole way up. It's moving from explo to more balanced poker. And we stay as explo as we possibly can the entire way through. I, mean, I don't understand how someone would make an argument that it's more risky to play explo unless they're also assuming simultaneously that the opponent is going to counter the exploitative strategy very efficiently.
0: I think that's what's been and beaten I, into people's heads. I think heads. this is what's happening. Yeah, I think that's 100% sure. what's been beaten into people's heads. And I think it's 100% why the live player says, go fuck yourself, because they've been winning for years not worrying about being exploited. And now they have the bulk of the community coming down on them saying like, you suck, you're so exploitable. Everybody knows it's a ruse. Mm. You're never going to win again kind of thing, right? So now they develop this like self-consciousness where it's like, well, well, man, maybe I do need to be more like the Ikes in the jungles of the world. And
1: for for what it's worth, I do think the x Live player is more vulnerable.
0: Way more vulnerable.
1: Because he doesn't have- But the environment doesn't punish it. Right. And he doesn't need to worry about it because live will always be soft. Right. Hopefully. The online exploit player is more scientific and for that reason he can he should be expected to pivot mm-hmm. with the resources he has access to. Like the good exploitative online player is using statistical resources that give him real time insights. Right into how the pool is playing, whether that's a HUD or if that's the new 50 million hand batch that you bought from the 2019 database, they have better resources to be able to pivot if the market changes. The live player is always just shooting from the hip. And I think maybe that's what the ultimate problem
0: is, is that they don't wanna deal with the fact that if the data comes back and says, you're just not implementing, they don't wanna have to deal with the fact that uh, the implementation was gray, right? Because if they follow a baseline balance play, then they could just say like variance, bro, right? Because anybody, like this is a cookie cutter strategy. Literally anybody can go out and implement it. But once they have to start trusting the, uh, the exploitative play, now they have to trust their ability to collect data or to trust in your ability to collect data or whatever the case may be. And it becomes this other layer of vulnerability where they're suddenly questioning, is my methodology correct?
1: And they have to trust that the opponent's not actually countering it. Right. Quickly enough that it would make them wish they never tried right. to go Explo
0: Right. Where the lie that's been sold to them is if you play GTO, none of these things exist. And that you actually can play anywhere near GTO. Which was what I was trying to get at by giving I heard you. These No, I understand, but like I I, I want to make it very clear to paint the picture because I think that like, particularly this audience, you're gonna have a lot of people who are at that entry phase where they're playing one hundred percent explo in a live realm or they're digging into every single piece of P.O study that they can possibly get their hands on so they can start beating 50 cent a dollar. And I think it becomes really critical to understand the the point of like putting faces to these strategies where it's like, if we even look at the first layer out of the solver, they're so far away from what equilibrium actually is that it's still just a methodology of playing full exploitative versus one another where neither
1: of them are conscientious of it. I agree. And, and I really feel like This conversation needs to be had from a few different angles over and over again until there's no objections left because it kills me that there are people walking around thinking that they're right about the the proper incentives for them to get to high stakes, Mm -hmm. the properly incentivized path to get to high stakes.
0: Or even the incentivized strategies. Like Like, And and you could say like
1: partially it's an opinion, but if we can start from the agreement that you want to be able to maximize your win rate at every phase of your career, which we can show why that's logical. Mm -hmm. It allows you to move up in stakes, which allows you to make more money per hour, which gets you out of Maslow's hierarchy level one. So you can start to think more clearly and then perform better. There's a lot of reasons we could map out why this is logical and irrefutable that you should try to maximize your win rate at every stage of your career if someone's not on board with that that's not really those that's not my opinion versus yours right that's you being illogical right and i don't like to see that because that's that shows that there's a blind spot that's not being revealed and that person if they were shown how illogical that uh train of thought was they would change Mm -hmm. this isn't like i like chocolate and you like vanilla Right. This is like my chocolate factory is making way more money than your vanilla factory.
0: Right. Right. And you know, just to put a pin in it, I guess uh I think it was just like the great middle of the decade lie where it's like, everybody found this new toy and they were so happy about it that they thought it was going to provide the answer. And a lot of crushers did develop out of it. um, But you know, as I think the pendulum is uh, the pendulum effect is always in, in, in the process, right? Like as we begin to to settle a lot more on the middle, what we're gonna find is that people are gonna keep saying balance is the path, game theory optimal is the play, while they just keep implementing exploitatively. And you know, it what what really bugs me, I guess, is everybody always taking for granted the assumption that like they'll start conversations with, yeah, of course, exploitative is more profitable mm. and then shift into but. And like now all of a sudden the entire conversation is wrapped around why it's not practical. And it's just like, okay, well, if if this game is gonna be um one that is played for profit for the foreseeable future, then we have to stop ignoring the fact that the reason why it's profitable is because everybody's playing exploitatively. Literally everyone,
1: right? Best in the world. They're playing This is the reason why I think it's silly to aim for nosebleed GTO. Right. As an online player, is like if you actually realized that if you are ever incentivized to play GTO at the highest stakes possible, it usually means the games are dry. Like by default, by default, it means that game doesn't have edge left in it. Right. If you have to play GTO. It's just like nosebleed heads up. Right? So it's a silly thing to aim for if you care about making money. Right. It's the thing that the golden boy aims for when he's like jerking off about playing OTB Red Baron heads up on mm-hmm. PokerStars 500 yep. Like there's people out there that are telling me that these are their goals. Yeah. Well in a, in a consult I hear guys say like well you know like I just always was drawn to GTO because like that's what I think OTB does and like I want to be up there playing man like this is not this is not a sound career path the 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 craziest
0: part of that to me is how diligent they are in that thought not recognizing how wrong they could potentially be
1: and how dangerous it is to spend all that time and effort on an irrelevant path that only maps to you breaking even at best versus the best in the world. Just right. so you can have 5,000 little rail bunnies. Well, you probably won't break
0: even either because the fact is that OTB probably has just developed
1: the best exploitative strategy for that realm. OTB hasn't played in a while, I heard. I think he's been ghosted for like a year or something. He probably moved to live where it's infinitely softer. All right, let's put a pen in this. Yeah. What's the uh, next? Was it the Max Silver thing? Because I hope it is. Yeah, I just want so, 10 minutes on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to... Start with you opened up an MTT stable. Oh, right. Cool. Um, yeah, we transitioned over to MTTs. Uh, we still have the cash table, but we kind of put a bow on it. And for the first time, I'm super happy with how the methodology ended up. We sort of came out on the other side way simpler. Uh, there's this quote that I told you that my brother found, and, and he added it sort of to the beginning of the course when he finalized the the methodology recently. The new revamp is like, Basically, it's based around this quote, which is, uh, I forget, some some very smart U- European man said it, I think. I could care less about the simplicity on one side of complexity, but I'd give an arm and a leg for the simplicity on the other side of complexity, yeah. where the other side of complexity is very accurate, distilled heuristics that came from a lot of complex statistical work. So... It's almost like the journey of uh, a pioneer in any new market is to start with something very simple, move through a tunnel of complexity, only to distill it and come out on the other side with something that appears simple, but is actually laced with a lot of upgrades we, from the complex we We're actually phase. talking
0: about this at the Elite Academy. Uh, it's so funny that... Uh, it's just, it's kind of eerie, honestly, like the way that we end up landing on very similar concepts when we're not speaking to each other. You weren't Mm -hmm. even here. You were out of, out of town.
1: This happens all the time though, with, uh, what is it? Like a three hundredth monkey effect or something that if enough people are talking about something.
0: Sure. Okay. That, that makes sense, I guess, but I doubt a lot of people were talking about this. I think that like you and I are just like kind of in a similar situation. So it lends itself. Uh, and we have a similar viewpoint on like strategies and, and things of that nature. but, Basically, like what I was trying to paint the picture of for those who had come to the elite was, uh, you know, you may you're, you might be too close to it now to really understand. And all of this may seem very complex, but the reason why we have to give complex problems their, their just due, and the reason why I push back against Daniel whenever he says complex problems can be taught simply, and uh, why, you know, people uh, who give me, issues with language and things like that. And I just kind of like guff at it and say like, look, just catch up. The whole purpose behind that is because if you keep simplifying, you never get past the complex and particularly in a nuanced game like poker, where all that matters is, you know, all, all, all of the devil is in the details and you have to really understand the nuance greatly. It's critical to get past that simple starting point. And what I framed out to them is like, look, you guys all came here with some sort of simple understanding of this game and we hit you with a lot and we took you to the level of complexity. Well, over these next five days, what we're going to do is we're going to get you past that. Mm. And from this point forward, what you're going to see are a bunch of practical simplifications that truly define the chaos behind the machine. And we talk a lot about chaos theory where uh, you know when you look at a super complex system, it just looks like sheer and utter chaos. But when you peel it away, it's very simple mathematical um you know uh systems and strategies that that drive the machine and you can understand each and every one of them individually but whenever you like try to lump them all together and just look at it from a zoomed out perspective it just looks like total and utter mayhem Mm -hmm. It, it takes that getting past the chaos to really get to a point where it's like okay everything's in slow motion now and i understand it
1: and it is so beautiful when you get past it coming out on the other side and seeing what our methodology looks like now compared to at beginning of 2018 it really is, it is a real thing that you can simultaneously make something simpler while gaining accuracy. Mm-hmm. And the benefit of that is it becomes extremely practical for a new player to utilize it, implement it. Yeah. Like I'm scared. I'm, I'm glad that we're the ones that are at the, uh, the leading edge of this, I believe methodologically in the cash game industry, but like, I'm scared that you can train a player to get to high stakes in less than six months now. Sure. Like that's a scary thought. And there's I also have judgment against it too cuz like it makes me wish I would have done something else from 21 to 32 yeah. and just picked up poker at 32 and like skipped a 10-year learning curve to just like stumble into this. I get that that's a weird perspective and there's well, obviously a ton of benefits along the way It's not
0: even that. It's just like you're 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 being a little too self-deprecating like you're forgetting that this probably wouldn't exist necessarily without all of that decade of So started. yeah, going
1: back to having to move through the complex period before you can get spit out on the other side but my point is it feels really really nice to i've never been able to like say this with confidence before and if i did say it before it was coming from a place of naivety Mm -hmm. i don't feel that naivety uh present because of what we've moved through to get to where we are at this stage i don't think our methodology is going to change that much from here on out i think we we pretty much put a bow on uh the cash game structure of our company and it's it's really lethal and i'm i'm very proud of our coaches for being able to do it specifically my little brother pat because he really took the reins with being able to finally use solid investment metaphors to express the type of concepts that were always on the tip of my tongue Mm -hmm. like guys this is really what's going on everybody's overcomplicating it you know if somebody's bluffing too much you need to call right every hand until they stop it's not like or if i was with uh Oh, hey, Cindy, Andrew Graham in mm-hmm. Jackson, Wyoming. We went on a little trip a couple weeks back. He had some video pulled up. I forget what he was even watching. But uh, we were laughing in the in the most non-douchey way possible at the advice in this video, which was something along the lines of on a river, he thought his opponent was overfolding. And his next question was, is my hand a good candidate to bluff?
0: Right. Looking for permission. It's just constant permission seeking.
1: And completely illogical if what you care about is bottom line win rate. Of course. Bluff the hand.
0: Of course. And just, sorry, just to to correlate this to the getting through the complex to land at the simple. I think the reason why people get lost in the complexities and never leave there is because they forego the idea of asking why. Right? And if you just ask the simple question as to why are you incentivized to bluff then, you arrive at a very simple answer there. Well, because he's overfolding. Because, and he increases my win rate. Yeah. Right. And it's like when you when you take that why focus point of view on each and every individual decision that you're making. And then holistically from a, a broad spoke uh, stroke spectrum where it's why do all of my decisions encapsulate underneath this umbrella, you find
1: very clear, simple answers. And this is where mindset this is where the rubber meets the road, uh, and where mindset connects with the technical. I really believe that the most valuable inquiries a poker player could head down have to do with finding the reason, the subconscious reason, that he doesn't want to bluff that spot Mm -hmm. every time Mm -hmm. and that he'd rather look for the best hand candidate. So I think usually it'll trace back to I can't do it every time because then I'll get countered. Right. But that's not really being put in its place. I also think like, that's
0: probably a lie. I think it's a lack of confidence that the person's actually overfolding.
1: Well, whether or not it's a lie, it's unexplored by sure. that particular... It's, sure. it's uninvestigated, For sure. at least by that player. Yep. And it's been investigated by other players who are on the exploit path. And uh, the, the results are good when you dismiss that belief that you're going to get countered for doing the most incentivized thing. Yeah. And that's why I said, yes, you will have to move toward a more balanced strategy at high stakes, but there is an order to this. If you care about... Going about investment in a logical way, so we put a bow on that. I feel great about it. Um, the MTT project was just one that I would never have been able to do alone, but I had a group of coaches basically come to me and say, "We think we can do this," uh, led by Ivan Stokes, and he has a cool little, a cool little posse that uh, that he works with, where we sort of merged and um, combined resources, and now we have what I think is going to be the most subversive uh, MTT stable in the industry. We're doing things differently and everything from our MDA methodology, statistical methodology, uh, which mirrors what we are known for on the cash game side, but also just the structure, the structures we're using to build the company. Mm -hmm. Um, The one thing I wanted to shout out is uh, this new referral link program that we're experimenting with. Basically, basically, if you are applying to be a, p- a player of our MTT team, you can get other players under your affiliation and you will get percentage of that player's profit mm-hmm. that you referred for his entire contract. That's a pyramid scheme. It's basically a pyramid scheme. <laughs> uh, but you get more of a percent of uh, the people that you refer, the more guys you refer. And there's this other cool thing that we're doing for guys who want nothing to do with playing for our stable. We're giving $500 cash to any third party who successfully refers a player to our team. And obviously there's a vetting process. We have to make sure that guy's a real human being before we pay you. But like all things considered, you refer a guy. He sends in his uh, information and and his two-minute video. We sign him. You have $500 in your PayPal account in the next two days. So
0: we got poker agents. We have a complete and utter MLM. And uh, you're just sitting at the top like
1: King Tut. It's going, his, it's, on his golden throne? It's going down. <laughs>
0: I like this. I like this a lot. But,
1: and I think it's cool because uh, we've been doing only free stuff. We took all of our packs down. We've been doing only free stuff for a while because I was just not happy with the overall... Um, I wasn't happy with the vibe of what we were pushing at the mm-hmm. time. I felt like, yeah, we have good products, but like everything just feels like it's either... Getting into the hands of people who aren't even capable of using it accurately, which I felt some guilt about, um, or it's getting pirated so hard, or it's just like we're offering the next insight, but we're not actually offering anything really transformational unless you get involved with our program. I
0: think it's a big part about training is that, uh, you know, in some regards, there's some responsibility to you almost being a shaman of sorts. And it's it's like like pumping out data is not good enough. You have to like hold their hand and say like,
1: this is how it's supposed to be applied. I think it's a huge thing to show them how it's going to be applied. And uh, I also think that there's like the Instagram campaign that we ran over the last five months raised my awareness around like why we may be perceived uh, in a negative light when, when what I look at, when I forget that I'm the one who delivered the content and I, when I forget, when I make myself forget that I have a context for the last two, three years of how this company developed and how this methodology developed. I pretend I'm in the mind of a person who's just tuning in to poker detox for the first time. And all they're seeing is like weird insight after weird insight Mm -hmm. that is rooted in something that is valuable, but like, it doesn't, I don't think it's landing with a lot of people that this is actually as, uh, as subversive and, and statistical, uh, as scientific as it actually is. Sure. So I pulled my guys aside and I was like, I, I don't want to do the same type of Instagram campaign that we've been doing. It's too many videos, too many face-to-face insight type things. Um, so we're switching it up. And I wanted to put a lot of the attention into this referral program because I think it's a win-win for anybody who has a network. If you have friends who play tournaments and if you like cash, refer them, you get paid for it for as long as it takes us to get to scale, which I think we're shooting for a hundred um, so can for make,
0: all you out there watching this video, you use, can make a part-time living
1: for the use, time being off of this referral program. I want
0: you to use referral code S4Y <laughs> whenever you are signing up to Poker Detox I'm trying to get rich. Uh let's get 100 of you signed under Nick here and uh you know ship me what is that? That's that's a lot of money.
1: It's a big that, it's $50,000. It's a big referral bonus. I'll take $50,000. Um but if you're interested in that if you have guys that you think you could refer, check out our Instagram cuz we'll be uh We'll be starting to advertise the actual uh, referral program in the next two to three weeks. And there'll be links and all the information that you need to figure that out. That, that is referral code Berkey sent you. <laughs> I don't care. What, just make sure he knows it's from me. So can you, we talk about the Max Silver right, TT let's, post let's, now?
0: Let's talk about it. He put a tweet out and basically said like, okay, elite player in the WSOP main and they're forced to follow one rule. Rank them in order of EV, I assume from highest to lowest. Number one, you can't look at your hand until after the flop. Number two, you're unable to bet less than 100% pot. Number three, you're unable to bet more than 33% pot. Number four, you're unable to open raise.
1: And number five, you must straddle under the gun. We talked about it and you said that there are three that belong together as pretty negligible in EV and two that are really important. So I want to focus on the two that you think are really important. So I think
0: straddling under the gun and... um, you can't look at your hand until after the flop or negative EV. I think the other three uh, can, p- can
1: potentially cost you EV, but they're still all three plus EV strategies. And of the two that you think are the worst options, mm-hmm. the most damaging to yes. your EV, which one do you think is the most damaging to your uh, EV?
0: I think particularly with how big uh, the prize pool is for the WSOP, straddling under the gun would, without, any shadow of a doubt be the most detrimental. Um, And my thought process behind that is that if I was given the choice between card value and position, I think position has more of a natural edge to it than um, being able to actually choose my hands, but sacrifice chips in the process. So that's really what we're discussing here, right? We're talking about... Looking at our cards pre-flop yeah. versus voluntarily putting in money and having full knowledge of our hand, but sacrificing position. And I think that like coupling the sacrifice of position and having to voluntarily put in two big blinds is detrimental enough, where it's by far the lowest EV choice.
1: The thing that I keep coming back to in my head that I can't get I can't get around this obstacle. Mm-hmm. So help me if you see uh, where this perspective fails but if you say that straddling is more damaging than not knowing your cards Mm -hmm. when i hone in on not knowing my cards the thing that scares me the most is that i either have to surrender to folding premium hands pre-flop yep or play all hands at which point I know I'm playing junk in order to not be mistakenly folding premium hands. Agreed. That feels like a big, big loss to never be able to know when you have a premium, which means you cannot maximize with the top 2% of your range, which mm-hmm. is where the bulk of your EV, I would say, is being generated from in the game tree.
0: Well, okay, so like let me try to help because I think that um, laying out the different tournament strategies available to us are, are going to... Uh, help us prioritize what makes most money versus least.
1: So, 10 minutes on the clock, Conrad, so we don't spend the rest of the time on this.
0: (laughs) What we have to recognize is, A, when we're most vulnerable in a tournament setting. And that's going to be when we're at shallow stacks and low SPR. When when we're at low SPR, uh, card value is going to rank highest for sure. So this is where your point is most valid, right? When we're shallow stacked, uh, we are going to put a high ranking on card value and our strategies are going to be be all in with good hands. Now, what we're giving up for that is we're losing an extra two big blinds per orbit. Now we're not losing the full two big blinds. Of course, we're gonna to get to realize some of that equity, but not only are we sacrificing uh, that extra two big blinds every orbit under the gun, but we're increasing the EV of the strategy of all the other short stacks that are at the table as well as the biggest stacks, right? So in the ICM model, both the extremes are going to be printing money based off the fact that we are blindly putting out an extra
1: two big blinds under the gun. And, and, and that's an important distinction, that they know that we're straddling. They don't think we're dark-raising. I'm sorry, they know that they right. know that we're straddling, they don't think that we're just raising. raising
0: right. The way I read it, uh, to me, a straddle is... It's like announced it, before yes, the cards it's, come it's out. It's out with the big blind, okay. right? um now if it's a dark raise of course now it becomes a lot closer i think but even still you're raising 100 under the gun which has problems in and of itself especially in a live setting at a slow tournament pace where it's two hour levels people are going to pick up on the fact you're raising under the gun 100 um so you're definitely going to be losing a fair amount of chips from that position if we look conversely then what are our strategic options in the contrary well we can find good reshove spots with our short stack without looking at our cards there are going to be good situations where we can just be all in when folded to on the button in the small blind. There are going to be good situations where we can be in the big blind, small blind, button, or cutoff, and we're just reshoving over an open based
1: on sheer and utter chip stack, ICM pressure, stacks left to act, uh, whatever the case may You're be. You're still making a mistake with the bottom of your range, though, when you have to do that. Right, but they have to call. That's the thing. Our mistake can still be rewarded because there's a pot for us to, to, to win. That doesn't make any sense. There's Go no, on. there's just no way that you're going to be able to hold that argument up. You're basically saying that it's okay to make a negative EV 3-bet shove because you retain equity when called. By
0: comparison to making a negative EV post under the gun that we're not necessarily going to get to realize the equity of.
1: Yeah, okay. So if you I'm not com- comparing it to a proper strategy, of course. No, I know that. But what I'm saying is I don't see how you're ever going to overcome... Fold equity
0: would be the only thing that would allow us to overcome it. We have fold equity with the dark strategy. We have none with the,
1: or we have little. So if, if, at short stacks, your response or your, your way of resolving the problem of not knowing when you have a premium hand is to play all hands. In, in favorable zones where you can apply ICM in or very, where you can yeah, apply in very, pressure. In
0: very, so it actually, I, I think we would still play a similar frequency of hands. It would still probably be like 15% of hands. But yeah, I would be like folding 100 under the gun.
1: So really what I'm hearing is in order for you to maximize the EV of your premiums, you're going to have to make substantially negative EV plays with a substantial chunk of your range to do that. Right, and well, that's where I would just rather have clairvoyance over my own two cards. But
0: remember, we're only we're only we're only losing our strategy for one street. So think of it this way: um, think if you just chose the button as an arbitrary position by comparison to under the gun. What you could do is literally call 100 facing opens on the button or open 100 when folded to, and now you're going to be in a situation the same situation that you would be in uh, as the big blind. And you'll have your full knowledge post flop with your hand. The only difference was you didn't get to choose uh, what your hand was pre.
1: What do you mean the same situation as the big blind? So, or sorry, as, 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 as the straddle, as, as, as a UGG. straddle. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and so you're, you're still still have, voluntarily you have putting in extra less... two big blinds in orbit. Yeah the the beauty of being on the button is that you don't get reshoved on nearly as much, and you just realize. And way then, more. this is what and I'm saying. Deck, this what is what mean? I'm saying. So like,
0: let's say we see a flop, the exact same percentage of the time based on straddling versus just calling 100 on our button and we land at the post we land post flop in the exact same situation where we have full knowledge of our hand because that's what it's saying it's not that we never get to look our hand it's only pre
1: so the only thing that da- is damage is our pre-flop strategy but i'm saying that's there's so much accuracy to be gained pre-flop knowing your two cards because if you're going to make sure that you play your premium hands you're going to have to play a shitload of really really ugly hands and each of those hands is negative ev to play from that formation right so like there's going to be times where like okay f- anywhere from utg to the hijack mm-hmm. what are you doing when you get delta hand i think you're either folding or limping so you would as take you the get later in- out
0: I, you could raise, uh, of course you could raise, um, but basically you should be mitigating based on what the, what the counter strategies of the players to your left. But eye. my
1: point is that no matter what you do, you're either going to be folding everything in which case now you're folding premiums mm-hmm. or you're going to be limping the middle ground option. And now you're having to limp a hundred percent in order to not fold. Premiums. I, I ta- I,
0: sorry. I take back the limping. I was thinking that if we limped, we then got to the look.
1: Okay. Well, let's take limping out. Yeah, so yeah. it's fold, so fold or raise or raise, right? And you have to go binary in order not to make a mistake with a premium. But I
0: don't think making a mistake with a premium is as punished in tournaments.
1: So let's do it this way. Are you willing to fold premiums? Yes. At the expense of raising, I don't know if that's the right way to put it, at the expense, but you would rather fold premiums than have to raise UTG. Yes. I just think that's not going to be able to be overcome. I think you're looking at it
0: too much through a chip EV model, though. The thing is is that like we're really navigating through the structure. We're navigating through the the variable stacks that are constantly presented to us. Like tournament strategy is going to consistently
1: change. The straddle position happens what one ninth of the time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you have to burn two BBs, it's but it's not big... it's not all it's not two full BBs because you're gonna have a premium sometimes, you're gonna be able to see a flop sometimes and realize equity when you look at your card. Sure. Sometimes it'll just fold around if people just really don't have hands. But I don't see how.
0: Well, you also don't have other, the option either, right? Like that's so like a when it folds that happens, to the big blinds, he gets to complete and it's just
1: knuckled. Fine. And that happens one in nine times that we're even in that scenario. Mm-hmm. But eight out of nine times or nine out of nine times we're in a situation where we would benefit a ton from knowing our, if we have a premium hand. We'll
0: always benefit a ton, but what I'm getting at is that I don't think tournaments are won and lost based on card value that much.
1: Or or maybe That's they, just, that's so ridiculous to if, me that if, you're saying this. If, I, I if, can't even believe I'm hearing this from you right now. You're you're basically saying that there is not value to knowing if you have no, a premium hand. of course hand. there's value. Of course there's value. What I'm saying is that I don't think we lose as much
0: as you're inferring by having to fold some premium hands.
1: I get that you know that it's bad right. to not know your hand. Yeah. But the fact that you're saying that an event that occurs one-ninth of the time where we lose a portion of a 2BB straddle is more severe, more severely damaging than an event that occurs nine out of nine times where we would be able to know if we have a premium preflop so we could play the premium accurately. But you only get delta premium... Seven percent of the time, but it's the major source of value generation, right?
0: But like, it's still a, a, effectively a one-to-one comparison. Say, you and could,
1: I'm not even just talking premium. I'm talking about like having Ace Jack, okay. and getting reshipped on, and knowing that you have an accurate hand to call, right? But let's say that that happens like eleven percent of the time,
0: right? So or or twelve percent, whatever one in nine is, right? So effectively, it's pretty close to the same. The
1: top the the value in being able to play the top twelve percent of your range accurately seems like you will never be able to overcome that with any other. I guess that's
0: where I disagree is that I don't think there's a huge edge garnered by playing your best hands better than the field plays their best hands.
1: I'm wondering, let's shift to how would we prove this? If we- I don't know. If we had tools. I, I mean, be? I think the easiest I think the easiest
0: framework to operate off of, and I don't know how relevant it would necessarily be, but like M theory was the calculation of how many orbits you had remaining in your stack. And by adding that extra two big blind burden, it reduces your M drastically. So in situations where like, say you have 20 big blinds and you're playing big blind ante, the M is going to be uh, two and a half blinds. So you're going to basically have like seven and a half M, which is, you know, uh, it's going to be an aggressive shove, reshove type strategy in, in that zone. If you add in that extra two big blinds... Isn't M a Harrington thing? Um, a grill is who came up with it. It was in Harrington on hold him, yeah. Um, but I think it becomes relative whenever you start to add more burdens right? Like if you did an ante only tournament, M is much more relevant than how many antis you have in your stack. So how many you know, effective orbits you have to last, if you add that extra two big blind burden, now you have 20 big blinds. Now you're looking at
1: uh, like four orbits. I can't believe how much you're overcomplicating this right now. I, I ask don't think you it's a simple question. How would we go about proving it if we had the tools? Right, but like, what tools? What what could you possibly use? I don't to know. Measure I guess the this? first thing that we would want to do is figure out how much of the two BBs you actually lose every time you straddle. Maybe it's one point five. I don't know. That's right. a good number to have. Yeah. And then figure out how much, somehow estimate how much win rate you lose by not being able to play the top twelve percent of your range anywhere near accurately, and I mean anywhere near accurately. Because if you play them all, you got to play the bottom eighty-eight just to get to the flop. Yeah. Like that's it just seems like you can't if you could play them anywhere so, near it'd accurately. It would Maybe more so
0: would we, we would need to like run a sim and see how often we're incentivized. Like like how does the button make the most money, the cutoff make the most money, the hijack make the most money as far as frequencies go. So like what do those ranges look like compared to stages of tournaments? Because if we could mimic that in some regard, in a lot of ways, post flop is so irrelevant in tournament poker uh that i think that you know largely speaking just being able to get to flops and have simple c bet strategies is going to demonstrate profit so as long as we're targeting the right scenarios where it's going to be us versus the big blind moving forward we're often just going to accumulate that way and that's a lot of how tournament poker works you're right though it ultimately does come down to showdown so like maybe i am wavering a little bit where if i had to decide which way i was more likely to win a tournament it would probably be through straddling
1: i think two things are happening you are underestimating the value of being able to p- to play a premium hand accurately and overestimating how much you're going to be, and you know, also underestimating how much you're punting by trying to play all hands to ensure that you don't fold a premium hand accidentally. I, but I've never offered that as a strategy. I don't think I would ever try to play all hands. I know that you're not, but, but when I say you're underestimating both of them, I'm saying that because you seem to be preferring raising you seem to be preferring this option over raising UTG one out of nine times as a straddle. So right. So that's why I'm saying like, I don't see that as nearly the as The biggest strategic
0: burden that we face in MTTs is the blinds and antes, and the fact that they escalate. So the fact that we have to incur it at double the rate of everybody else at the table is a big problem.
1: Yeah, but that's never been compared against not knowing what your fucking hand is. It's only not knowing what your hand is on one street. Yes. And in order to maximize the value of that hand on that one street, you have to play all hands. That's the problem.
0: Yeah, sure. And,
1: and by playing all hands, you start punting EV with the bottom, whatever the bottom end of your range is that shouldn't be in your opening range from whatever position you're opening. Right. The late position is where you're going to be, obviously, in the best shape. Right, and that's, but, I guess, what I'm saying conversely, is that like if we folded all under the gun,
0: under the gun, one... Or how
1: about just when you're on the blind?
0: I mean, you're going to call 100 from the big. And you'll... Facing a min. And you'll and sacrifice you have... getting the three bet in with your premiums, and that's yeah. not so yeah, bad. Yeah, You're not really giving much up there. I, I think like in the big blind, you don't sacrifice anything. Yeah, or the big very, blinds, very the big blind seems to be the easiest spot to deal with. And the small blind, I does. think, presents like pretty easy dark uh three betting strategies.
1: Like you'll just find formations to attack according to stack depth. What really sucks is like if there's a three bet in front of you and you're in the small blind or big blind you wake up with a monster. You yeah. have to fold that hand every time. Yeah. Like these these things I feel that like... sucks, but it's also like
0: not it's not like where the bulk of your tournament EVs derive from. What what ultimately sucks, and what the caveat would have to be to this in order for it to be practical is that when there are all ins, you
1: have to be able to look. Mm, yeah. As I was just thinking, if somebody's reshoving on you, this is disastrous if you can't call with your top twelve percent. Right. right, exactly. So like, yeah, if If if, you add that caveat, I think it gets much better for you. I
0: agree. I agree. And and I agree. Like, that's the biggest hurdle to get over. It's like, if I can never look at my hand when facing an all in, then the only time I can ever call is whenever it's a a 10 blind shove or less. And then I basically have to call 100.
1: That's a big caveat, though. I'm not sure Max was thinking of that when he wrote it. I'm not sure that's what he's thinking. I mean, mean, that's fair. They're both certainly negative. Is that what you were thinking when... You initially no. answered the question.
0: No, no. I thought that they were very close without that caveat. Are we at
1: 10 minutes? <laughs> 15 minutes later.
0: I guess we'll end on a little bit of a lighter note. Um, essentially, I found myself out to eat the other day having some casual conversation and, you know, the holidays kind of came up and things along those lines. Um, and I found myself in this sort of rock and hard place dilemma. Um, you know, essentially like the conversation steered towards like, oh, what are you doing for the holidays? That kind of stuff. And I realized that like, as I've reached adulthood, uh, as happens for most people, I think holiday traditions just fell by the wayside. Mm-hmm. And like, I operate under this, you know, paradigm of like, I don't care. I see you smile. Yeah, that's right. Twice, I, twice I this episode, there. that word came up. <laughs> um, but the truth is, is that like, I actually think family traditions, community-wide traditions, uh, things of that nature. I, I think like a lot of the sentiment behind them are really important. And I think that like, you know, by nature we are kind of tribalistic and, or tribal in, in nature. And uh, these help create that like human bond. And I found myself like in this weird juxtapositioning where it's like, well, part of me is like trying to buck tradition every step of the way. It's like, I don't like the constructs of uh, an entity like the military or government or religion hoarding over somebody and saying like, you have to live your life this certain way. I don't like the societal pressures of like, you know, you're supposed to do things in order of like get educated, get a career, get married, have kids and die. I don't like those restraints. But then the other part of me is just like, man, there's something super nostalgic about like... Thinking back to uh, my family's traditions, like my grandparents would throw a huge Christmas party every single year. And as a kid, I didn't even understand the magnitude of it because it's just what we did. We went to Pap and Graham's. My granddad would spend a month preparing for this thing. He would make all this homemade Italian food. Like I would help him. You know, I was his little buddy. We were down in the basement slaving away, making these raviolis and all this other stuff. And like, you know, I just took it for granted. It was like, this is what we did. And I loved it. It's like I got to be his helper. I got to eat all.
1: Santa's a little helper. Yeah. Happy's a little helper. Yeah.
0: And then I became a teenager and it's like I have all my aunts and uncles around me and I hate it because I'm super introverted at this point. And it's like I kind of pushed away from the tradition and then I grew up, moved out and here I am. I don't even put a tree up anymore. And it's just like, I don't know, man. I, I think that like we're in danger as a society as a whole as we become more introverted due to. Uh, social platforms and basically the removal of the face-to-face, the touch, the the handshake, the hug, the high five, like all of that stuff as it kind of like dissipates, we run this risk of pushing back too hard against the system. You know what I mean? It's like Christmas is nice and Thanksgiving is nice. And I think from an intellectual standpoint, that's kind of hard to kind of take in and accept. Comes with a lot of small talk
1: though so much but how school i mean so we have to make this distinction that like if christmas becomes associated with painful painful conversations with people you don't actually like hanging out with that's much different than having a tradition that fosters a sense of belonging and support and and love how much how much of the not like being forced into situations with people you don't want to hang out with how much of that do do you think is like self-imposed though well it depends like because if you're going home and your mother's inviting the four aunts that you can't you'll know, have no control over being there and yeah i just saw that new adam sandler movie uh where he's like preparing for the wedding and it's called the week of and like oh that's not new or whatever it's that's on Net- that it's on netflix yeah, yeah. and it's like a perfect depiction of what it's like to be just totally tilted by right and the, in- the in-laws it was that- a big burden though it was like you know
0: for literally a week being inundated by people that you don't necessarily uh, want to
1: So I watched that movie twice. I watched it once alone, and I was just super tilted by it. So so here's just a meta point. The second time I watched it, I watched it with a girl, and I was in a much better mood, and I'm laughing hysterically, like, just loving it. Yeah. So was it because I was with someone the second time that I suddenly was able to enjoy that and just get around the fact that, like, a lot of the content was just super tilting? Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's something to be said about the the value of being around other people that you enjoy being around that's got to be the number one reason that yeah, this, that this I, I is think valuable that's fair. and then the, the people that you can't stand being around are just sort of like um, bullets that you take to be able to be in a situation I also like think
0: that. that there's something to the idea of dissecting like why you can't stand to be around certain people and it generally is going to come down to something you're uncomfortable with not them as a
1: person or just the fact that it's i mean sure it ends up coming down to judgment if you want to go the critical route to it but if you want to just stay in the relevant domain like there are family members that i have that there's no point whatsoever for us to be communicating we are on completely different wavelengths and if there is communication it ends up just, just being everything from shallow at best to manipulative at worst yeah and by manipulative i mean like respond to what i'm saying so i can judge you that's what most people are doing when they're making small talk they're Mm -hmm. bringing up a concept that they want your opinion on so they can form an opinion about you and feel better about themselves or they're saying something to get validation from you sure both of those highly manipulative that energy it's just really disgusting to me and i don't want to be involved in it because it's not an energy that i really want to play into you can't avoid that completely it happens with your friends even. Yeah. But there's less of it if you actually select the group of people you want to hang out with. All I'm saying is sometimes you can't do that when you go home for the holidays and you have a big family. I have a big family. Um, and, it's funny because like... And I still like those parties, but yeah. they are energetically draining at times because you're navigating a fucking landmine. Yeah, I get that. And and Minefield. the thing is
0: like, I don't enjoy that either. I'm, I'm super cringe when it comes to uh, a lot of social settings, but it's only my own angst. Like once I actually get into it, uh and, and particularly if people are inquisitive if people are asking questions it's way easier than having to go around and like strike up conversation in my opinion but at the end of the day even in the most shallow scenarios where it's like this person probably doesn't have a lot to offer me uh and i don't know if i have a lot to offer them kind of thing i i think that like oftentimes you end up surprising yourself if you can find some sort of like commonality thing- well, ground well something. particularly something that like piques your interest that you know, uh, comes from a shallow standpoint, right? So like, uh, like I like thinking strategically, right? And I love sports. And it's like, I can often find that common ground where I can speak on a high level about something and they're genuinely interested. And now all of a sudden, like, I've kind of validated myself in a, in a shallow way.
1: Yeah, it's, that's the thing, it's important distinction that it's not that I only like high level discussions. This is not it at all. People who know me well, like you don't even know me that well. We don't even chill that much, but the the people who I am hanging out with, who see me like in my own domain, I'm like a total goofball. Yeah, uh, and it's it's bizarre. It would be bizarre for you to see the other side of my personality. There are shallow things I enjoy. It's the acting like we're genuinely interested that when we're not that is painful yeah
0: yeah i agree Mm -hmm. and i think like it comes down to to this and this is like where i have a big hang up with gift giving is the expectation the expectation that if you're at a party you're going to be super social right like i think that there's a nice middle ground there where it's like you're open to being uh talked to you're open to talking to people you're open to discussion you're open to all these things Mm. but you're not necessarily seeking it out that's me that's my general approach um that's a balanced approach i think yeah and i think that's fine where i can't tolerate tradition uh, so to speak is the expectation of adults giving each other gifts it's like the most ridiculous thing on the planet to me unless you're in uh like unless you have some sort of relationship with that person where you know them well enough to give them a sentimental gift where it's like hey i was thinking of you and this is non-material I'm not going to buy you something that you could have bought for yourself. Mm. But more so like, you know, this made me think of you. So I created this picture frame out of macaroni because when we were kids, like it was your favorite meal, whatever. Super thoughtful. Yeah. Something like that where (laughs) where it's stupid. They would never do it for themselves. They would never get it for themselves. They would never otherwise have this gift given to them. I think that's like awesome. Mm. It's fantastic. But like the idea of like showing up to a party at 38. And your great aunt being there and be like, I got you something and handed you a pair of long johns from Kmart. It's like,
1: but that's it. Like the cool thing about watching those Sandler videos is like those main characters. It's that sense of like detachment almost that like they can make it just funny. And yeah the, and it's almost like they're making fun of the person to their face but the person's so old they don't even realize it and right, it's just right, part right. of the movie joke yeah that you can't do that in real life no yeah yeah like <laughs> you say something a little condescending and but, now you're getting attacked yeah it doesn't really go
0: over someone's head you know so, they're,
1: they're they're in tune to that all right i gotta get out of this outfit because i'm about to sweat my balls off and st nick's got some presents to deliver to Sweat off your snowballs. Merry Christmas, everyone. That's a wrap for Vlogcast number 30.
0: We are going to be off next week. We'll see you after the new year. Hopefully, by that point, Chin will be back, slimmer than ever, ready to push forward with his bet into 2020. Uh, We'll discuss, I'm sure, resolutions, goal setting, and things along those lines. Thank you guys so much for tuning in throughout the past year. We really appreciate it. Can't believe I've done 30 of these already. Um, if you like what you see, obviously smash the like button, comment below, let us know what you'd like to see and, uh, don't sleep on next week. We're still going to put something out for you. We wow. got a little,
1: we got a little surprise cooked up. Consistent.
0: Yeah. Noble. So we'll see you guys next time.